Hello, Steve. Hello, Dan Landrum. How's your world? It is a beautiful morning. Uh, that's it's a beautiful day. I'm glad it's beautiful here too. I love early mornings. If if you know the song from uh, by Bread, if if the world should stop revolving, spinning slowly down to die. Yeah. If that did happen, I hope it stops in the morning because the light's the best. And if it was just going to go out, I'd like for it to be morning. How about that? If the world slowly stops spinning, what is that? So you don't know the song by Bread? Well, sure, I know the song. If the world should stop revolving, spinning slowly down to die. So it would slowly slow down its spinning. Yeah. And if it slowed down overnight, we'd get a really good night's sleep. And then in the morning, I mean, we'd all we'd, we'd catch on fire pretty quickly. But at least the light would be nice. That's all I'm saying. I don't want the <clears throat> this this apocalyptic scenario you've presented is <laughs> somewhat disturbing, and you're ruining my fine morning. I'm sorry about that. It's a pre pre apocalyptic. It's movie. a terrible song. If we should all slowly start burning up. No, it says I'd spend the end with you, and when the world was through, then one by one the lights, the stars would all go out, and you and I would slowly drift away or would simply fly away or something like that. It's, it's like, a wonderful song. It's like a narcissist song that requires much Xanax. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> hey, if movies where the world's all destroyed and everything, if those are called post-apocalyptic movies, why don't we call all other movies pre-apocalyptic movies? Like You've Got Mail, that's a pre-apocalyptic movie. And Forrest Gump. Pre-apocalyptic. Well, why don't we call every non-romance movie a non-romance movie? That would be very right. tedious. You would have to say <laughs> what everything is not, and it would remove the focus from what I is. Oh, I know. I like where this is going. We're headed straight to uh, to speech and the problems with speech. Nice save. Yeah, it's good stuff. So. But what we were talking about mornings, and actually, uh, I I do like mornings, and almost every day, I, I fail sometimes, but I try to record, especially when I'm I'm working on a project and trying to develop new material. I either record something I'm working on, but most of my song ideas come from uh, turning on the microphones and playing early in the morning and just playing. The very first thing I play is usually interesting, at least to me, maybe to nobody else. And if I don't record it, I'm probably not going to remember it. Yeah. Well, I, th I always think of that when I think of songwriters who talk about keeping a collection of little phrases and ideas. Like they're sitting in a restaurant, they just get a neat idea, and they gotta they got to have a way of getting it. And then they got to have a way of finding it later. So that, that process of them taking the time for the songwriter to actually write it down, you have to have gotten to a place in your life where that writing down part doesn't feel like a thing that you dread because of the physical act of writing. And for some people, maybe that's not easy. And I could see why recording things might break the inspiration for some people because there's technology involved in it. Yeah, man, but in every craft... There's certain 
the, there's certain, I don't know, uh, re, there's things that create resistance, but with some practice, you can get used to it and it can actually start to work for you. And, you know, yeah, I mentioned the other day on Facebook that I'm working on audio projects very actively right now. And someone wrote and talked about, you know, is it, is it reasonable to engineer those yourself? And I know we've talked about this before. Uh, Remember that podcast? It was probably 15 ago or 15 so. 15 years ago. <laughs> it seems like it. Uh, I'm, I'm facing that right now. And the technology can be a problem. Like even getting this podcast going right now, I was trying something new and it failed. And so at the end, we just bailed and went back to the old way. I was trying to use 35 electronic devices at the same time instead of 33. Getting somebody else to record you is frustrating because you might find somebody who doesn't know what they're doing or you might find somebody who knows what they're doing, but they don't like what you're doing. <laughs> or, right. or you find some studio that's really well known, but because they don't think you're a big deal, they bring in one of their you know, apprentices to, to do the project. It could go a bunch of different ways. Hmm. It's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to compare what we do to what a painter does. Because a, a painter always has to do, you know, their... Like, I, I look at recording like painting. Does that make sense? A little bit, the, yeah. Layers. The process of, of doing recording is an art in itself. Uh, and the painter has to, or the, or the sketch artist or whatever, has to have the vision and then actually manipulate the tools. And so maybe that's a little bit the way I feel when I'm in the studio doing my own stuff. Yeah, There's still that's a right. thousand. Does, does that make sense? And I you've done enough of it where you're not completely intimidated by everything. I mean, you've got the equipment. Hopefully you got things, you know, hooked up right kind of get it all firing yeah but i mean it, stuff can still go wrong i assume it can probably go wrong for the artist as well you know the the paint that they've always trusted the consistency is different for or, or the you know the ends of the uh brush have gotten curled in a way that's weird um yeah but you've been recording yourself and other people for a long time yeah but i mean lately you've been recording in the morning just to kind of get back into the groove of recording and to discover new material. How do you like, I love the idea of collecting ideas, but if it's lyrics, like you could throw all that into Evernote or something. And then a year later, you're like, what's that song I was thinking about a sailboat. You could just type in sailboat and boom, it comes up. But when, if, if you're just an instrumentalist and you're recording audio samples of ideas, how can you really – I guess you'd have to tag things. Well, I, I have a method if you want to hear it. What's that? And there might be better ones, and you might correct mine now. Because you want to be able to find it a year later. Yeah, so I the, I named the file in the morning with the year first. So it would be – today. what is today? The 28th or whatever? Of, uh, I don't know what it is. So the file was named 15 uh, – oh, what is this? 8 15 and then it says morning capture. That's the name. Yeah, but that's and not going to help you a year later. No, but what helps is so you – first off, you've got it. So if something happens and you can only capture it, you can then, using your to-do system, whatever it is, 
say, hey, there was something pretty good in that at about three minutes, or you might want to listen to that again and make a note in your to-do to come back to it. Well, I, because you've, I, I like the idea of tagging it like bluegrass, minor key, and then you could have a rating system, one to five or something. See, I think we're getting into that thing, though, where you – I don't think you know the tags at the time. I mean, you might. Maybe you're a little more organized than I am. But right. if I know I've got something and I have an extra five minutes or so before I have to go on to whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing, I just make an MP3 and I load it into iTunes and listen to it on my headphones. You know, I might still make a note that I need to listen to that. But uh, And I, granted, I have more tunes that that will never become anything than I have time, you know. Yeah, I I've read so many books on songwriting with lyrics that I really would like to establish a system of saving short, neat audio recordings of, you know, little ideas. I want to have a way three years from then to know, oh, this was an Irish jig idea. And, you know, I don't know you. And and the rating system might be like this is one I really want to follow up on, or this one I'm not sure about, you know. Right. I don't. So I know, like in Digital Performer, I can have notes on each track, and I can have general project notes. But what I don't know is how searchable they are and how they show up as metadata. I would you know, like I would put have, all that in the file name, I guess, just to make it long term. I mean, Apple has file tagging now, but I'd probably figure out a way to throw it into the file name yeah again but you have that's the thing that you and i've talked about a bunch of times when you're trying to do uh, gtd method methodology you often don't know what something is at first I, or you have an idea you, you've got and, enough of an idea that you might as well put down the idea you have yeah, I don't know. That always seems to be a resistance point for me. I don't. You I seem don't to have some resistance it. there. You should talk yeah. to your analyst. <laughs> but that's just me. So anyway, I think uh, our advice, our prior advice, that if you can get somebody else to record you, and you have all your stuff together and you're ready to go in and record it, that's probably the best way to do it. And then that's you know just caveat emptor there. You've just got to find you know somebody who's good at working with you and doing what it is they do as well. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. It's a process, though, and if you don't try it, you'll never get there. It's a, You know, never, even never finding went. a mechanic is a, is, is a hard thing to do. Right. I'm tempted to talk about the contractor we're working with on our house right now, but he might listen, so I shouldn't. Yeah, wait till I'll the project's quiet. done. I'll wait till it's done, yeah. Uh, I got distracted there. Shoot, I was going to say one other thing about that. Oh, it's it's a completely lost thought. But so here's this no 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 is no, no it's point. back it it's back, and it's that the project that I'm working on right now wouldn't work if I was working with somebody else, because I am looking at the recording process as a canvas, and so this is a studio project that I'm doing. Well, you're right the producer now. who happens to also be the musician, right? And Anything goes. So I might find a particular drum rhythm or something that I like. Maybe it's coming in from who knows what direction, and I won't end up using that. 
but I need to get something down so that when Stephen Humphreys comes in, if he's going to do that percussion thing for me, he has something to listen to. To as far as making an audio recording goes, there's two things I really would like to experience. One is I was reading about the Rolling Stones and the way they would make a record is they would book studio time and practically live in the studio. Like they would, you get the feeling they didn't know if it was night or day outside. Yeah. They're probably bringing in food. They might end up sleeping under the soundboard, waking up recording while somebody else is sleeping. I, I really like the idea of sequestering the uh, musicians and, and actually coming up with everything there, not ahead of time, which I know isn't always ideal, but some of the best records have been you put good musicians in a studio for you know a month and a half, and they actually, you know, maybe m- most of the time they're not recording, they're working stuff out, but it's the idea this crucible where where things are created and, and tweaked. And the other thing that I really would like to do is maybe have a producer where I trust them and I let them have the vision for it and I and I I just try to play well, you know? I would like those all that in one experience. We get somebody we really trust or we choose to trust them. We all get locked in to a studio where we sleep and eat and bathe and everything. Yeah. And and we give it a, a good amount of time. Like let's say we give it three weeks and and then uh we just see what happens. But that takes money and it takes knowing people you trust to work with too. Yeah, well I've kinda I've done you know, I'm I, I, now that I think about it, I've never really done the thing where I go in and somebody else is producing me. Maybe that might be <laughs> that might be my problem. I should probably do that. But I've done the thing where you kind of just sequester yourself with uh, the Hammer On project that I recorded was that with uh, uh, Bob McMurray and Randy Klepper and Mark Wade. And that project and the one that I did in a similar fashion with Stephen Humphreys, the what do we call that? Landrum and Humphreys. That's, I really like those CDs. That Landrum and Humphreys is... I'm tired of saying this almost, but it's like one of the best recordings I've ever heard. Oh, thanks. I like it. It surprises me when I hear it. It's really nice. My, it's You know, my brain, when you get in the mood for a CD, it sometimes helps when that CD is kind of one thing, you know? Like, I don't want to listen to some Irish uh, CD where some of it is real. Well, here's a perfect example. The Mannheim Steamroller Christmas album. Half of it sounds like uh, a renaissance ensemble, some kind of early music ensemble. And the other half of that same record, their first Christmas one, is um, kind of vintage synth gear. Right. You know, and they just mix the tracks up. And so when I'm in the mood to hear synths, I have to ignore the renaissance tracks and vice versa. I don't like that. When the nice thing about your the CD you did with Humphreys is it, it, it just is so cohesive. It's like, I'm in the mood for that. I want to listen to that now. I think that was wow. really successful. And I think That's a good the... producer possibly 
delivers that kind of thing. And I'm not saying every recording has to be like that, but when I grab something, I want to match a mood that I either have or want to have. Yeah. (laughs) I am comfortable as an instrumentalist with people using the music as background. As, As a matter of fact, Stop me if I've mentioned this before on this podcast, Steve. I just don't remember. We're going to get more and more of this as we get we're older. Have, yeah, we're just going to have to yeah. do it. We're just, just going to have to say stuff it. again. But just before we started this podcast, I got off a phone call with a uh, somebody booking me for a gig. And she she said, here's what we want. We want you to play during the dinner. Then somebody's going to speak. And then we want you to like do a presentation on your instrument. She said about 25 minutes during the dinner, the person talking will be talking for about 10 or 15. Then if you can do another 15 or 20 minute thing, that'd be great. That's a perfect gig for me. As soon as they say they want me to play for the dinner, I'm hoping they don't ask me to then do a concert where everybody listens. But That's what I'm talking about. I told her no. Oh, but I even like the presentation part. But I want that to be first. But here's what happens, Steve. If you play background music at a dinner and there is food oh and i should add they want you to do the presentation like maybe when dessert comes out so if you've done background music during dinner somebody gives their talk and then you're supposed to be the foreground entertainment they will absolutely i don't care if it's michael jackson and elvis presley together they will absolutely not pay attention to what you're doing i love that because You've already no, but if you're supposed to be doing foreground stuff, meaning you're talking and trying to entertain them, it's it's going to fail. And I said I'll gladly play before and after, but I'd rather it not be a presentation. I'd rather they both be background. Or if you want me to do 20 minutes of, hey, this is what I do and this is what this is, and try to get people happy to clap, I'd like to do that before I do background music. I love doing black background music. Uh, I, because I can go and really do what I do best, and but when I have to give a presentation, that's a, that's a little, it's not quite as good. But I like that. All right. But what I hate doing is like a thirty-minute concert for non-dulcimer players, especially like what you're saying. If I guess if they're eating, because the thing is, it's like, look at me, I'm special. You know, I hate that. I would rather just be making music to make the event a better event and I can relax and enjoy myself and set a mood. But I don't want it to be about me. I want to be part of the thing doing what I love to do. But of course, I don't want to discount the fact that the people in the audience might enjoy me <laughs> in a, uh, making it about me for 30 minutes. But Yeah. Well, it's not even when you do that. It's not make you're entertaining people and Entertaining people and doing background music are two different things, and I like them both. Put it, look at it this way, Steve. If I do a foreground entertainment thing where they're, where I'm the focus and they're paying attention, I'm entertaining them, heaven forbid, educating maybe a little bit because they haven't seen this instrument. At the end of that, it's really comfortable and natural for me to go, thank you guys for listening so much. I uh, appreciate your attention, and uh, I'm going to just play while you enjoy your dinner now. And it's absolutely okay for you to talk and enjoy yourself while I'm, while I'm playing. 
The opposite of that is awkward as can be. I hate it. Hey, everybody, I know you've been eating and I've been playing in the background and you've gotten used to that. Now I want you to be quiet and watch me. Yeah, that's interesting, that little twist. There, it doesn't work. There's a venue in Nashville, the Bluebird Cafe, which I guess everybody knows about now. Um, but they they feed you, but then they ask you to be absolutely 100% quiet, no talking, no whispering, nothing. Well, That's the venue, though. Well, I'm just saying, I hate that. If you're going to give me food and then want me to <laughs> just sit there and quietly munch, well, I, I, I just would rather poke my eyeballs out. I don't want to do that. And I, I really feel arrogant. I mean, if we're in a concert hall or something where it's absolutely been designated as a concert, I do appreciate silence from the audience to some extent, other than them, you know, participating or, you know, whatever. But if I if I'm in a restaurant and I'm expected to be quiet, no, I came here to eat, folks. You know, <laughs> that's crazy. They're not asking you. They're just asking you to eat with your mouth closed. No, 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 Is that no, the no, problem? No. no, yeah. When you whisper, they come over. You'll get – there's a saying in Nashville. Well, the T-shirt says, I was shushed at the Bluebird. And and it's – I get it. But if, if you don't want anybody I, – I just – I love – I guess it comes from my early uh, performing uh, – situations where like I used to perform in Lexington, Kentucky when I've I'd been playing Dulcimer a couple two or three years. I I played at the New Morning Coffee House. And I loved to look out there and see people laughing, talking, eating. And I I felt like I was augmenting that cool thing. I wasn't the the single cool thing in the room and I liked that. I, I mean, I don't even feel like I'm able to be the single cool thing in the room. Oh, I, I don't buy that. But oh, whatever. Those are two different things. What do you mean the you don't buy exists. that? Sorry. The bluebird exists. What do you mean? The bluebird exists what do you for mean? a reason. What do I mean by I don't buy that with right. you? You're crazy entertaining, Steve. I like You're- attention. That's true. But I don't want to. But often I'm going to be like, I'm going to really ultimately fall down on this is what's the most interesting thing in the room. And it's I, for me to pretend it's me is often very uncomfortable. It's stupid. It's selfish. I don't want to do that. Now, if I am, <laughs> if I've been asked to be the most interesting thing in the room for a period of time, I will do my best at that. But I love playing for. I love being part of something rather than be the focus of something. I'm going to go easy on you now, but I think if the words that you just said were coming out of my mouth, you would not be easy on me. All right. Well, go ahead. Tear into me. Why are you an entertainer if if you're not the most interesting thing in the room? You have to think for a few minutes. You can be. I am an interesting thing in the room, potentially. Well, so should we all get together? I mean, is this like the uh, what's that Asian statement? The na- the the nail that sticks up will be hammered down. Is that our goal to make? You know those Christmas ornaments that are uh, foam balls with a bunch of pins stuck in them, where everything's exactly even. Is that our goal? I think it's not. No, it's you're ignoring the context here. If I okay. if I have been hired to perform with an orchestra in front of three thousand people, and I'm the final piece of the evening, clearly. 
the attention is is on me and the orchestra, but very much on me. And I will do my best, and I will enjoy that. But we're talking about, like, I'm thinking of playing in that coffee house where there's a lot of cool stuff going on, and it's great to feel like you're a part of that. That's the the, the context makes a difference there. The Bluebird's a step up from most places, and it's Nashville. There's a there's a much bigger rubric there, right? I mean. The headline. You is mean Stanley is, Rubric? Is that his name? Yeah, Stanley Rubric. That's I like his stuff. It's uh, what was the word? You, the, the crucible there. You know, the situation is that its intent is to so showcase singer songwriters, and you can have a meal. Whereas if if you go to you know some other restaurant that's known for being a great restaurant, the intent is not to go hear the person who's in the corner playing music. My fear is that I will be believing I am the most interesting thing in the room. I will be presenting myself that way. And the truth is, the audience is a prisoner to my vision for what that event should be like and what the focus should be on. I've been to the Bluebird when there's been amazing songwriters there to where you just, man, it's electric. It's amazing. But I've been most of the time I've been to the Bluebird, you're listening to really bad songs. I'm talking the worst, just the worst stuff. And then after the songwriter gets down, I mean, there's so many weird things that can happen. I don't want to be a prisoner in that situation. I, I really sometimes I want to tell my audience to leave their cell phone ringers on because I'm sick of the <laughs> tension that comes. From all of us having to worry about that. Somebody's phone goes off. Another guy turns around and glares at them. It's like, can we just leave our ringers on, please? Can we chill out a little bit? It gets to be a little tense. I don't want to be an audience member where I am felt like I'm a prisoner of somebody else's appreciation of themselves. And I, I, I want to be careful. I don't put other people in that position, you know? Yeah, you're a... a you're not going to get mad at me for this, I don't think, but you're 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 a bit of an emotional sort, uh-huh. <clears throat> and maybe are feeling things to a uh, more extreme degree than other people are feeling. <laughs> you think I'm cracking up or something? No, no. But I just mean in that situation, you might be a little hypersensitive to too many things when really you just need to like, uh, perhaps in your case, have a libation and play your song. Well, there's certainly. I can overdo something, but you know, there's nothing wrong with somebody getting on stage who's not musically that interesting. I don't have a problem with that at all. I'm, I am that guy sometimes, but if you accompany that with this performer thinks a whole lot of themselves, and then you put me in a hot room where the air conditioning is not working. And then you tell me to be quiet <laughs> with a bunch of hippies, say hippies. No, I wasn't thinking that. <laughs> Okay. I uh, I want to have fun, you know? I was saying hippies just because of the smell. And certainly, and I want to be real clear on this, if I go to a concert and the performer is not doing that great a job, I can appreciate so many things about that. I mean, if nothing else, I can appreciate their courage and I can see that this is part of a process and I'm part of an understanding, supportive audience. But... I just want to be real careful that I never take myself real seriously. I, I don't want to do that. I want to take 
my music seriously, I want to do my best. I just do not. Can you respond to the idea of being a prisoner in an audience? Have you you felt like that? But, yeah, I've, I've been on both sides of that where I feel like people are in a situation that feels too contrived. And, you know, I think that's an important part of, of being a performer. Um, hmm. Sometimes you just got to get through those things. I mean, and there's probably always someone in the audience who's who feels that way. What's wrong? Am I selfish or crazy that I rarely want to sit in an audience? I would rather be standing in the back of the room because I can always slip in and out. You know, I. You're maybe hyperactive and a little socially awkward, and and so am I. I get that. It's I'm a participant in things. Not a very good audience member, but I'm so glad there are audience members. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe we do. Maybe we're at a heck of a lot of concerts. You know, like if I'm at a festival, the reason I sometimes see my fellow performers in the audience and I think that's very considerate. What, what I should do that. But then I think, wait a minute. I need to be warming up backstage. I need to be daydreaming about what I'm going to play. Um, I need to be re- relaxing. Um, I, I, I feel like an actor a little bit who's backstage getting in the role and then I want to come out on the stage and do my thing when it's over. If my set's over and let's say the concert lasts another hour and a half, I would, when my set's over, I, that's a massive release of tension for me. And I like to, um, go out side in the venue if it's at night enjoy the cool air you know call my kids um i do enjoy listening to other musicians but like kmw there might be a three-hour concert you know and it's i just taught all day this makes me sound like an arrogant jerk maybe well no i want to can i can i Pull you down from that yeah, a little bit. That? I mean, from feeling that way. So here's the thing: everything that you do when you're at KMW or somewhere else kind of leads up to the this moment of you teaching or the moment of you performing. Well, and also you know, helping people in the parking lot and right. Eating no, with no, but people I'm, and you know. but I'm getting to a point. I'm not talking about how busy it is. This isn't a complaint. No, I know. You but there's so much be, going on besides the performing. And the I know. Teaching. I'll let you. Talk. But I want to stick to the. To the performance, you to be a performer are, and to be a good one, are focused on all kinds of things about yourself, and they're all, if you think about it too much, a bit selfish. How do I look? Does it seem like I know what I'm doing? Does it look like I don't respect the audience? <laughs> you said like where? Yeah, self obsessed. So you got that's right. But you have to do all that now because you've spent time doing that. That doesn't make you self obsessed. It makes you a better performer. And when you're sitting in the audience, you're feeling all those feelings for everyone who's playing. Oh, I hate that. And it's and it wears you out a little bit. It does right? wear me out. And if yeah, and I think it doesn't put you in the right uh, headspace for performing to sit and watch two hours of a concert and then you get up and do it because you're you are kind of exhausted. And and maybe people that aren't as uh, th- their emotions are a little farther down in their skin. <laughs> Don't have that, but I've I've known you for a while. 
I don't want to have a conversation with you about anything before a performance because you're not even there. You're just really a live wire. I don't want to be having a conversation before a performance. You know, part of the thing is I don't pick out what songs I'm going to do for the most part. If I, if I, if a song comes to mind on stage, I might think, oh, you played this one too much. You better do something new with it. And I'm doing that on stage. Right. And for me to be able to do all that stuff, I kind of got to be in the right headspace. Right. Well, it's the same way. It's the way we're approaching this podcast. You've said it to me and I've said it to you a dozen times. We'll start to talk and we'll go, oh, no, 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 don't. Let's let's just do the podcast. Oh, well, we were talking about playing background music. When I play background music for a large, let's say it's a, there's 500 people in a very large room and I'm supposed to provide background music. I feel like whatever it is I like about playing, I get to do that best in that situation because the pressure is off, you know, and I don't have to narrate what I'm doing for everybody. I can just, when I get done with a tune, I can actually play a song longer than I normally would on a stage. And then when I'm done with the tune, I can let the space in between go a little bit. I can take a drink. I can say hi to somebody who just walked by. I love that. Now, in contrast to that, I've heard performers say they hate it, and they mean it, because whatever it is they like about the music, it doesn't include them sitting somewhere and just playing while people kind of ignore them. I mean, I almost feel like a DJ, Dan. I I feel like a DJ a lot, but instead of playing records, I'm actually making the music I love being a DJ, how you set the mood for things and you watch people and you you come up with things you think are going to enhance their situation. Right. That's, it's two different deals. I wonder well, why more some than people two. hate doing that. There's many. There's So the there's the gig that I mentioned that's the, the going to play for a dinner where there's going to be a presentation. That's a kind of gig that I like. There's straight up street performing where your absolute raison d'etre is to – Create an atmosphere and a space. Well, that one's almost another category there. I love it. Then there's uh, the going to a music festival, and and you're one of the performers, and you're playing. So that's different as well. These people are like your friends, and and the reason I say that is because that's different than you playing. Uh, I'm gonna. I've got two more, and then I'll stop. I've got a concert coming up in October that's going to be at a very formal recital hall. Uh, but it's not classical. It's my stuff. So they're coming to see me do my stuff. And if I'm not super formal, I'm not going to adopt that persona for that just because it's kind of a formal place. I'm going to be me in that space. But then there's the one where you go into somebody else's house. That's like when we're playing with an orchestra. I feel like you still get to be you a bit, but you've got to play by their rules at that point. And all those are different things. They're, just They're different. also different. When I played in a boys' prison one time, I always think back to that because I kept thinking, you know, I, I really just need to go out there and do what I do best. But I also felt like I had a responsibility to entertain the audience and give them something they would enjoy. But the I, But then I thought, what do you give a bunch of guys in prison, you know, that they're going to think is cool, and then I ba- and then I countered that with, well, maybe they're glad to just be doing anything, 
And maybe you should not worry about it and just do your thing. But it's that whole dialogue you go through in your head. See, I think you could make you could go the the boys' prison one could go horribly wrong if you think, well, prison, prison, Johnny Cash. I'll pretend like I'm Johnny Cash. Right, that could get really. And you're ugly. not Johnny Cash, huh? Yeah, your bet. Your best bet is always to do what you do. But as a performer, you do learn to gauge the situation. And like I was listening to a performer, and he didn't know that the majority of the audience was um, very religious and conservative. And this is not a dulcimer guy. This was just, he's actually a very well-known guitarist, singer. And he just started off with these real bawdy songs, like really oh, no. bawdy songs. And I saw the switch happen. He he knew he wasn't getting a response. And all of a sudden, he started doing these really old, great gospel tunes, really clever, great tunes. And he did them totally from the heart. And it was like the audience completely changed, and they loved it. And that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to fake something, but I'm just pointing out that that guy could tell what I was seeing. You know, was happening. It was the people were not responding, and he changed. And I, I think some of that is good. You're like a chef. You don't want to feed a vegan a big pork chop. You know. Right. Hmm. Hence. I rem- so I was in broadcasting for a long time, long time. And I don't remember this as well as I should, but I distinctly remember how nervous I used to be and sw- sweaty hands and just just really 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 nervous. In the beginning or a lot. In the beginning and for a few years sort of as I progressed through uh I don't know. I'm not really sure why I progressed, but but it worked. I mean, it was I was what you would consider to be at least successful if that's the kind of thing you want to do. And uh, it got better, not because I learned techniques, I think, to make my hands stop sweating, not because I started wearing gloves, but because I got better. Right. And then I was... I was maybe better able to be in the moment as I was doing the thing that I was supposed to be doing, whether it was, you know, the weather or doing an interview, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? And I look at that as performance. I know I've mentioned this before, but the real turnaround point for me was what I learned in in improv class. And just the basic thing from that is you're not going to die. You're not going to die. When this is done, you're still going to not be dead. It's important to learn that in every field. Uh, let's say you don't get tenure, you're not going to die. You know, right. you're having marriage trouble. You're not going to die. You're 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 a comedian. You just bombed on stage. You're not going to die. And sometimes, knowing that you're not going to die, can actually point you in a successful direction. I think. Yeah, <laughs> it does. You know, but it. But so the basics of you're not going to die, though, probably actually do come down to some form. Uh, you have to remember to breathe. You have to remember to just focus on what you're doing and know that, ah, that wasn't perfect, but I'm going to keep going and not focus on that thing. And that's certainly harder for some people than others because we don't all have the same personality, right? A com- I think so. But, I mean, a comedian that's always afraid they're going to bomb is not going to be able to really relax and do and be funny, I think. Yeah, see, I, I wonder if I could be funny enough to be con- a comedian. Maybe I could I don't think I'm brave enough to be a well, comedian. Well, we're not comedianing. <laughs> we're not out no, there you, doing it at all. 
No, but I think <laughs> we can have a bad performance at a festival or at some place, and people don't yell at you <laughs> right then. Can you imagine if all the things that should be said when you're playing at a dulcimer festival, like, oh, come on, hit a right note every now and then. Yeah, that would be <laughs> hilarious. Somebody just yells, get in tune, buddy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you stink. <clears throat> I don't need to hear about O'Carolyn one more time. Come on, get some new material. Next act, please. <laughs> get off the stage. Wow. Hey, there. maybe we should have a dulcimer festival that's, uh, what would we call it? The, the dulcimer smackdown. It would be like one of those deals <laughs> where they, uh, one of those murder mystery train trips where it's a bunch of actors and you got to figure out who killed who or whatever. But it, instead of that, it would be, and the, I heard of Ed DeBevix in Chicago. It's like a restaurant where the the waiters yell at you. Oh yeah, it would be. We could have a festival where everything there won't be any tab, and we'll teach by ear, but in a terrible way. The food will stink. The concert will be really long, really hot. <laughs> Everybody will be out of tune. We'll all do really long murder ballads. I like murder. Ballads. I love a murder ballad. <laughs> About nine verses. <laughs> I'm. I, I would like to now listen. I have. I took a class on martyr ballads for a semester, okay. and I, I'm very much interested in that stuff, and it it's important, and I find it. I'm passionately interested in that stuff. But let me just say the following anyway, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I would like to perform a classic Lebanese murder ballad in the original language. The piece is rather long. It will last just under 40 minutes. Please pay particular attention to the final two verses. And the whole time you're listening, you're like, is this the final two verses? No, no, it's only been 15 minutes. It's just a long deal. Now, murder ballads, to be fair, <laughs> are it's a storytelling. And if you're somebody like me who's worried about your set, you've got to do after, you know, I'm... I'm not I'm not I'm not far out from my set. I, I can't listen to lyrics. That's the problem probably when I'm nervous and I'm well. thinking about my act. And somebody gets up there and they do a really long murder ballad. It's like listening to a super long joke where you know you haven't been paying attention and you have to dread the whole time not getting the punchline that's coming. Or it's your friend who's a little older than you and he's told this joke eight times. And he doesn't tell it well. And you know it takes a long time. And you know the punchline. And you know it's not funny. Goodness You gracious. already know. That's an uncomfortable situation. I think there's another thing, too, though, because I'm really self-conscious that I want to respect other performers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, But sometimes you're thinking, oh, I'll come in here and I'll sit down for 10 minutes you know, because I really want to hear so-and-so's set. Uh, and then something happens in the 25-verse murder ballad starts, and you're thinking, now I can't get up because it'll look like I'm dissing them, and I don't want to do that. Oh, and then here's the awkward – like if – let's say a performer does something out there really interesting, and they get off stage, and I heard it, and I can look them in the eye and say, that was awesome. You know, that's, that's the best. Uh, the worst is, you know – I'm backstage getting ready for my act. I just came out. They're coming off stage. I didn't hear them at all. And I don't want to tell them that was awesome because I didn't hear them. So they're coming off stage. I'm looking them in the eye. And, and I'm just kind of quiet. I Oh, I hate that. I always try There's, to listen yeah. to an act 
if I think there's any chance, I'm going to have to talk to the person. Because, All right, you, here's you the know. thing. You need to say something that you know is generally true, like, dude, you rock. Really? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Because I think you're right in feeling like it's, oh, it's awkward. I just need to not look them in the eyes. I had a performer one time come off stage, and I hadn't heard her play. And this is a performer where people are going to want to um, – let, let, let me just tell you what I said. You can, wait, wait. You can just say, do you have a good set? No. They know. Hmm. that It's important to all of us. We all want to be liked. And, it, and she came off the stage. I hadn't heard her, and I didn't say anything. And she leaned over to me and said, you shouldn't be so stingy with your compliments. <laughs> now, the thing was, I hadn't, I wasn't in a position to compliment. I would have loved to. I didn't know what, I didn't know what happened. I guess I could say I didn't. And here's what I do, Dan, is I'll say, I'm really sorry. I didn't hear your set. I was backstage getting in tune or something. Well, good. That's way better than going, you shouldn't say stupid things like that. What? Well, I mean, you could have reacted to the fact that she said something ridiculous. I'm assuming it's a she. Did you say it was a she? I don't know if I did or not. <laughs> <laughs> but but I took her point well. Um, I mean, that's a little odd to say, but uh, we, you know, we all performers are strange creatures. We all want acceptance. We want to be liked. We want to be appreciated. We're all very insecure. Down deep, we struggle with liking what we do and hating ourselves for it. And when you put us all in a room and we're all doing seven-minute sets and we're bouncing back and forth, we owe it to each other to kind of make that situation easier rather than harder, you know. But I don't want to lie to people, you know. I've heard performers where what they're doing is not very interesting, but then all of a sudden they do something awesome. I make it a point to to let them know I heard that awesome thing and that was awesome. I want to give credit where credit's due, you know. Uh, I want to be supportive. I feel like sometimes when we're in these concerts where it's a three-hour show, we each get a seven-minute spot. You know, you can only do a couple songs and blab a little bit. I f it's almost like one of those uh, political uh, debates where at the end they'll say we're going to give each can you know candidate thirty seconds to uh, cap up the the evening or whatever. It's like my goodness, what do you? It, it's like being a pinball on a pinball machine. But I get it. You know, it's a week long event. There's so many people there. Again, it's the context of it all. But put a bunch of emotional artist types backstage like that. <laughs> what do you call that? A powder keg? <laughs> Jesus, yeah, there's, there's other names for it, we too. We get along well, though, yeah. don't we, generally? I think we do, generally, yeah. But you do learn people's ways. I mean, we uh, there are some performers who are more than just mildly uptight as they're getting ready. Uh, I would say most others, aren't. Most In aren't. the dulcimer world. I don't know, you yeah, might not agree with that. Yeah, I would say that's true. No, I think I'd agree. It's with pretty that. laid back. I think, though, Steve. Oh, I'm stepping out on a limb here, but those that are a bit usually put on a pretty good show. The one, yeah, because you don't want to be, you don't want to be uptight you, and then get out there and stink. 
if you're going to be uptight, you might as well kick some butt. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's it shows one thing. Well, it could show that you're just socially awkward, but it could also show that you take your the thing that you're doing seriously and you respect the audience. Lois Hornbostel once said something very good. Uh, I used to think dressing up was kind of silly. You know, like you get dressed up for church, you get dressed up for court, you get dressed up for your performance. But she pointed out that getting dressed up is a way to honor your audience. It's You're not honoring yourself so much. You think this is an important event. You're going to honor your audience. And I that changed my thoughts on that. That's a mild data point, I think, in, in deciding whether or not someone is honoring their no, audience. No, no, no. I mean, We're not talking about, oh, come on, Dan Landrum. What? I think data points are important. What's a it's data the point, problem? for goodness sake? Well, okay. So, <laughs> so the basic hypothesis that you came close to making, and I'm not saying you're making this, is that people then who don't dress up are not honoring their audience. No, it's it's like it's like a young kid is saying, why do we dress up for our audience? And then an experienced person says, one reason we dress up for audience is to honor them. It's a nice thing. But are we going to get into the Socratic method here in the last 10 minutes? I hope we always get into the Socratic oh, method because that's sake. what what makes all conversations relatively interesting. Can Rarely we do the rest the of the show in Morse code? <laughs> I don't know how to do it, so it would be a one-sided conversation. Do you have your Morse code thing there nearby? Well, you know I do. Your little beeper? <laughs> well, you know I do. <laughs> you recognize how nerdy that is, Steve. Can you, If you tapped on it right now, would it be accidentally sending a message out that could start like a global problem? No, it's, a, it's, it's on a little practice oscillator. Can, all right, can you say this? Uh, let's see, let's see. Courage is endurance of the soul. What? Is that too complicated? C-O-U-R-A-G-E. Yeah, that's too much, yeah. Is the endurance? Well, that, well is that, this that's a hypothesis? Part, it's, actually, it is. It's, a part of the, it's part of a hypothesis that's used in a, uh, an example of a Socratic dialogue. And then it gets argued. Really? Yep. Here, listen to this one. Let's see. Uh... <laughs> there we go. Hear this laughter now? This is nervous laughter. This isn't because it's funny. Now, you know, you know, I didn't. You know, I I didn't just send courage as the endurance of the soul. No, I don't. What did you say? I'm not telling you. Okay, that's fine. Maybe maybe somebody could. Uh could write and say what you this said. This is a great thing because when I when you kind of get under my skin a little bit, I could just send little messages to oh, the audience. Steve, you could start a whole new thing. You could have Morse coded Morse is it it's Morse, M O R S E. Morse. Right? Morse Morse encoded tweets. Where you only got 127 dots, dashes count for two. I've been thinking about doing a Christmas album where all the lyrics are, are you know, in code. Steve, I think the idea that I just had is a good one. You could start I'm not that, and do it that. would. 
kind of for nerdy people, and it's sort of like Twitter. And sell it to Google for $800 million. Oh, my goodness. And then we could play music all day long. <laughs> It'd be like marrying a rich, a rich person. You know, you said something to me earlier about it's important that, you know, how we say things matters. And that's one of the things you really like about us doing the podcast, right? It's not just what we're talking about. It's how we're talking about it. Absolutely. Five five stages of Socratic thinking. And I don't want Wonder. you to think or anybody else to think I'm an idiot, and I don't want to be an idiot, and I don't want the fruits of an idiot. Uh, but uh, Oh, wow. That was a lot. It's just complicated, though. <clears throat> here, here they are quickly. Listen. Oh, my goodness. And all, pretty much We're all science. We're losing thousands of people right now. I don't think so. I think people are, are smarter than we give them credit for. But I think for the most part, we haven't been taught how to think critically about our own speech. We're critical of everything else, but we are the easiest persons to fool. And a method, an epistemic method, if I can use that word, you, of can, examining our own uh, epistemic processes, that's a good thing. You used the word teleological last podcast. What was that word? Teleological. Do you want to have a discussion about teleology? And then you like a priori and all that. What if we had, uh, and I'm not kidding, a little glossary page you could prepare for the audience? (laughs) And like right now, we could say, everybody pause and go read that list of 30 words. I think the audience ought to do if I hear something that I don't get, I make a note. And I look it up. Yeah, but not that's, everybody's going to do that. Well, that's not my problem. Well, it's a way to honor your audience, Dan. You could provide a, <laughs> a you know. A, I'm I am dressed nicely. That's all the I honor. I don't even <laughs> believe that. <laughs> Come on, listen. I want to know the about the stages. Socratic method, but you've got to stop. Like, if you yeah. use a priori or whatever, I need. I mean, could you help me out a little bit? I didn't use a priori. I know, ever. but you could have said. You could have said. Uh, Determinist, I need to know what these things mean. Are you suggesting? So, are you saying? Are you saying which one of us is more like our audience? (laughs) I mean, are you? I don't. These words. What are these words? Let's start. Are you saying that we shouldn't use? Language that describes. No, we should. But you should honor your audience by you know like. What was the what word you used a little bit ago? Epistemic. What kind of assumptions are you making? Did you say epistemic? Epistemic. I kind of think I know what that means, but do you really want me to ask you what each one of these words means? Well, an epistemic method, epistemology, is just Study a of way knowledge. of de- Yeah, and it's used in different ways. Words, words have usage, basically, is what matters, and it has to do with the way that you determine what is true and false. And that's a method. Okay, well, that and, right there, I like that. You just, that piqued my interest. The way okay. we determine what? Whether something is is true. The way, how do we determine what is true? And so that leads to methods. And there are there methods, are methods that have been, for determining what is true. Yeah, generally the way we feel about something isn't a good method. Generally, 
when we're getting somewhere, we use something that has proven reliable and is testable. And so within the Socratic method, the five stages, which are, I just want to do these fast because it only takes a second. Wonder, stage one, hypothesis is two. Remembering that in hypothesis, something's never proven true. It's only able to be proven false. And that's the process of falsification. Three is this thing called alinkus, which just means dialogue. Is that like an incus? No, it's a linkus. It's just a word for dialogue. Incus versus linkus. Okay. That's the Socratic dialogue. And then uh, four is revision and restatement where you say, well, okay, I'm not saying. And it happened multiple times during this conversation where you go, well, I'm not saying that if somebody doesn't dress nicely, they don't respect the audience because that's an easily falsifiable statement, which is why I posed it to you that way. And then the fifth stage, the final stage, is that you act accordingly as if it hasn't been proven false. How would because, you like to be this guy's friend, ladies and gentlemen? Well, <laughs> I mean, look, no. this is good what you're saying. This, we, we should have, we sh if we're not careful, we'll, we'll, we'll have certain positions that are based on nothing. Based on no truth, you know, and certainly you, as my elder, I appreciate you encouraging me. Age has nothing to do with it. Uh, of course, it doesn't. You, as my elder, uh, encouraging me to have good methods for determining what's true and false. I mean, that's beautiful. But it it's a little hard when we're trying to enjoy a meatball sub. But I I, I don't think I'm willing well, to do the can work. I so listen, what you just made was a hypothesis. Really? It's no, hard. it wasn't. Yes. It was called screwing around. <laughs> okay, well, I can accept that because you can go, okay, I was exaggerating, which is called hyperbole. Oh, my goodness. Which is fine. Hyperbole. Hyperbolic conversation is okay. I wasn't in a hyperbolic chamber once. Were you? Really? No, they didn't seal it. No, okay. All right, I'll shut up. You really I'm got him one, up. though? I'm going to shut up. Okay, well, we're really done, I guess. I just, what I like about doing this podcast is we are having a bit of a Socratic dialogue about things that we deal with on a daily basis. And I don't think either one of us is <laughs> pontificating, which is meaning we're standing up on this platform and saying that what I say is the way that it is. Oh, that's like the pontiff. That's exactly right. Wow. Yeah. And I don't think we're doing that. I think we are having these things. And I enjoy the process even more than the subject sometimes. And I know that that can be annoying to people and maybe even feel like arguments. No, no. It's, I think it's a noble cause you have to encourage people to tell the truth and to, to know and to find the truth. That's, 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 I love it. But can I, can I point out one other thing in the last two minutes here? So... When you have a hypothesis, when you make this statement, this truth statement, you'll hear people talk about it. And I'm saying this because I do think people don't know this anymore. You'll hear sometimes people talk about whether or not it's valid or whether or not it's sound. And understanding the difference between validity and soundness is critical to having good conversations. Please, please tell. Elucidate. Validity indicates that an argument is logically correct. But you have to remember that something can be logically correct without being correct and true. Wait a minute. Well, so soundness what? is... Something can be logically correct, but not That's true. Right. 
there are two, and I don't want to have a conversation about this, but I'm going to use a, one. And there are so many immigrants in the United States that it's burdening the system. That's logically true. Or, or having too many, wait a second, having too many, this is it, having too many immigrants in the United States burdens the system to the point of collapse would be logically true. Okay. Now, whether or not it's correct that there are too many in the United States. Oh, so you can That's, say um, you, something. It can be logically correct, but not necessarily be sound, because if you tried to defend that, an economist might go, well, wait a minute. Here are, here are some data points. Well, then you're talking about fleshing it out. Yeah, yeah. Alinkus. That's what Alinkus no, is. No, I don't like that word at all. That's a really great Alinkus? word. Awesome sauce. Yeah, it's it's, it's a wonderful it's, word. It's one of the, it represents an entire category of sounding words that I don't like. What uh, Linkus? Well, let, let me put this another L-I-N-K-U-S. way, just to show why it's. Con- Listen, because it's E L E N C H L I N K U S E L E N C H E L E N C H U S. Boy, Linkus. You can look that up. That's coming from memory. I don't know if that's right. It'd be funny but, if like that was actually not pronounced that way at all. It means like. What I just said means toenail shaving. I like Ellen Chuss. But listen to this. Here's the thing that makes this fun and a challenge. Uh, Somebody can make an argument that sounds right because it's valid, but their hypothesis can be invalidated, which is being falsified by proving it to be unsound. Now listen to this. The inconsistency of our language makes this worse because what I, I used words in there that meant two different things. In that one sentence... Someone can make an argument that sounds right. I use the word sound. And then later in the sentence, I talk about it being an unsound argument. Because sound in one instance means it comes into your ear and it sounds right to you. But it's unsound when you understand what an unsound argument is. It, an unsound argument is one that's not, that, that, that isn't, I mean, a sound argument is one that's logical and true. I have a... Unsound means one of those is wrong. It could be, you know, logical, illogical. Well, on one hand, I do find this stuff very interesting, and, and I feel like oh, I need to get a book on this. I need, I want to be more solid on this, and I, I, I think that's going to be true no matter what I say. You just next. need those five stages. That's all there is. I, I find it. I can't argue that it's not good to think about these things, and I also think we should think about these things, and I should. Um. It's interesting to note the resistance in me to talk to you about these things. Part of it is I'm afraid, and I guess this is stupid, there's a subtle error you sometimes make that I'm not going to be able to diagnose or describe to you in the language you're used to. I, I feel a resistance of even going into this whole area. So... Somebody could say, well, Steve doesn't care about truth then, and he just wants to do what feels right. Well, that's, I don't think that's true either. There's something going on. I don't, I think the resistance is because you think I'm always trying to say what is true or false. And I even said a minute ago, that's not what I'm saying. What matters Mm -hmm. is the method. Yeah, but your ultimate goal is truth. Well, I see. Within the Socratic method, nothing is ever proven to be true. 
it's not proven to be true. The fifth stage is you act as if it is, but you recognize you still could be wrong. And you might know more about it later. So the method becomes the important thing that keeps you moving forward. Not that you're coming up with this box of answers. I'm going to go eat some cookies now. <laughs> I'm going to have some crackers and milk. Later. Later. <laughs>